Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a a friend and repeat guest, uh, Mike Maples of Floodgate. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So, uh, Mike, uh, last time we talked about crypto. uh, Here, we're uh, we're here to talk about value hacking. So when we start from the top, what is value hacking? How did you sort of conceive this term? And what problem did you uh, sort of set out to solve when doing it? Yeah, so... so, um Value hacking was intended to uh, address a problem that we saw more and more in the tech industry, which we like to call fake growth. And so fake growth to me is kind of like the hidden in plain sight secret that's pervasive in Silicon Valley. It's as pervasive in tech and in startups as fake news is in politics. And so we started to think, well, um, a lot of companies that we'd worked with some get all the way to the promised land, get public, like say Okta or Lyft kind of more recently, but some start out great and go off the rails and we wanted to understand why. And so we did a lot of analysis and thought about it some and interviewed a bunch of founders, companies that had worked and not worked. And we really honed in on this issue of fake growth. And so what is fake growth? What are the most you know common signs that a startup is experiencing fake growth? Yeah. So fake growth basically emphasizes growth optics over growth reality. So it's a, you know, we like to call it growth theater. And so, you know, what are some common examples? Um, you know, focusing on funding round sizes and getting publicity around that, focusing on how much PR can you get regardless of your customer traction focusing on is my valuation in the last round bigger than my buddy's valuation in the last round that I met at a meetup. And and even worse, it's the board is actually usually complicit in this. It's, it's everybody trying to make numbers in a spreadsheet that look good. And so board meetings become about, okay, I read in some blog, you got, got to grow 15% a month. And so are you growing 15% a month? And so what we what we learned is that one of the great causes of fake growth is that people start trying to grow before they're ready to grow, and that the right way to think about it was create a very strong value proposition that's true, and then uh, grow by syndicating the truth. Because if if our value proposition is true in theory, we should be able to scale at will. And and there were some people I think Chamath was most uh, vocal about it who were sort of saying that this was sort of fake growth was sort of structurally built into the system that every you know investor along the way had incentive to sell to the next investor. Do, do you buy into sort of the structural problem surrounding uh, fake growth? He would call it uh, some sort of like VC Ponzi scheme. Like what, why is fake growth happening now? And did it always happen or? Yeah. And I, and I think that Chamath makes, you know, in his own inimitable way, some, uh, you know, very provocative points about that. I think, I think in general, his concerns are well-founded, as well as like Bill Gurley when he talks about how now the burns that some of these companies have uh, is higher than even in the dot-com bubble. And, and, and you know, we, we see examples of fake growth, um, companies that are valued at half a billion to a billion dollars, and they're out of business in less than 18 months, which is just incredible to me, and the, the amount of money some of these companies consume. So it, it, if I'm, if I'm going to kind of make the point that I think Chamath was making, it's that there's too much money in the venture business. 
that the the LPs want to fund these venture firms because they have money to put to work and the venture firms want to raise money that they can then in turn put to work. In a pathological extreme case of that, everybody's marking up everybody else's deals and collecting management fees and hoping to find the greater fool to buy these companies later on. And companies don't want to go public. And so the the shell game just kind of continues. And because the companies aren't exposed to the scrutiny of the public markets, they're able to be fake growers indefinitely. Uh, so that would be the kind of the the uh, most uncharitable way of framing the issue, I think. And 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 yeah, people, you know, like Bill Gurley saying recommending that the solution is that I, th- I think if I understand correctly, that companies should go public earlier. Is that his solution as you see it? And do you share that recommendation? Well, in in general, I believe in real growth, right? So I'm for better or worse, I think that there are some companies that play the shell game and have a big exit. But for every one of those that happens, I can give you a tour in Silicon Valley of 50 founders who believed they could pull that off and it didn't work out. Because the more typical scenario is before you know it, you're not worth your preference stack. And so, you know, you end up being worth less than the amount that you raised. And now years later, you're at the mercy of the VC and what kind of a carve out they want to have and how generous are they. And so at Floodgate, we just said, hey, look, you know, we're going to try to do it the old fashioned way when we work with founders and we want, you know, the really valuable companies are real growers. You know, Amazon was a real growth company. Microsoft was a real growth company. Google was a real growth company. And a lot of those, uh, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, or sorry, Amazon and Google included lost money before they made money, but they engaged in real growth along the way to becoming valuable. And we, we've talked about some of the obvious sort of, uh, in indications of, of fake growth focusing on, you know, office space, fun- funding rounds. But w- what about companies that thought they had real growth, that they, their investors truly thought they had real growth, but that real growth wasn't real to begin with or, or just dissipates very quickly? Like, what about the subtle? Yeah. In my experience, most companies, real growth is a decision, right? So it's not something that you hope works out and then you, you discover later whether it was real or not. Real growth, I think, is about asking the question, how is value getting created in this business? And what's the the best way for real value to get created in this business right now? And, you know, real growth is is a thing that happens not just in startups. You know, Warren Buffett, when he invested in Coke for the first time, one of the reasons he did was that the new CEO of Coke said, hey, we've gotten into all these adventures. We bought a wine company. We're just all over the place. And what we kind of realize is that when we make profits, we ought to reinvest it back into Coke and sell Coke in China and India and Africa, all throughout the world. And so the difference between Buffett style investing and how we like to look at things is you want to invest in really valuable businesses, but Buffett believes in applying profit dollars to growth. Uh, we believe that in the early days, it's okay to consume venture capital because there's a someday future category that's really massive, right? And we're trying to find the category king. But but really, you're saying, okay, when we lose money, the reason it makes sense to lose money is because more value creation happens that way in becoming the dominant category king than in immediately chasing profits. Mm-hmm. So the antidote to fake growth is, is, is real growth. Obviously, obviously, there's this term growth hacking. It's been around for a while. You've you know, put growth hacking into a bigger framework that includes value hacking, growth hacking, profit hacking, and then company building. Why don't you talk about the differences between value hacking and growth hacking, where that sit within this bigger framework? Yeah. So the, the, the way I started to think about it, actually, all of us at Floodgate were studying this topic and we kind of started to realize that actually in a startup, 
value gets created differently through time. And, and it, it reminds me of, uh, elements in chemistry. You know, in the early days, you're a startup, you start out dead, you have to prove you're alive someday, and you're in zero to one mode. And we call that mode value hacking. Value hacking is about discovering the truth of your value proposition before you start to try to grow. So you're trying to, you're trying to solve a problem uniquely that people are desperate for and, and that you believe someday a whole lot of people will be desperate for. And, you know, Ryan Smith at Qualtrics has this great saying that I like, which is, you know, there's no substitute for the scar tissue and muscle memory of mastering zero to one. And then what, what happens after that is you shift modes into growth first mode. And now, you know, the reason we like to say it's like a different element is the, the transition is important, but you're, you're literally becoming something different. So now you're trying to 10x your business in a certain time frame. And so when we work with a SaaS company, we know that most top quartile public SaaS companies can 10x their revenue from a million to 10 million ARR in less than 18 months and consuming less than a dollar for every new AR dollar they create. And so you, you try to have what's called a, a predictable value creation agenda, and then you instrument the rest of your company around creating that value. And then someday, hopefully you're profitable. And then you go from growth first to profit first. So I like to say zero to one is value first, element V. Growth first is element G. Profit first is element P. And then someday you're a company that has a variety of those initiatives. You, you've got some startups inside your company. You've got some cash cows in your company, some growth initiatives in your company. And as the CEO, you become asset allocator in chief among those things. And how do you know when you've really figured out V and you can move on to G? So, so it's a little bit Zen-like, but like I like to say that the transition from value first to growth first is super hard. And maybe it would help to even just describe the differences. So, you know, value hacking is zero to one mode. It's about invention and it's, we don't have product market fit yet. We've got to get it. And we do that by creating this unique value proposition that lots of people will be desperate for. And usually the startup team has to get it done. So if we're halfway through value hacking and we think we need to hire a salesperson, we're usually like, okay, we probably backed the wrong team because the, the founders kind of have to be like MacGyver. And so you've got builders and a combination of builders and James Bonds and MacGyvers, you know, on these teams. And, and this is the really important part as well. The time frame is incredibly unpredictable. So like if you look at Twitch, it took them over five years to get product market fit. They were just in .TV before that, whereas NG Moco took less than six months. And then, and then once we had it, we had to pivot because we discovered it. We couldn't make a company out of it. So, so value hacking, it's like you want to be patient for time, but hawkish for burn. And that the, the team of MacGyvers kind of has to get it done. And it's a, it's more of like a, a truth seeking exercise. Yeah. And when you backed Justin TV, did you say, oh, hey, I've got this, this is an incredible set of MacGyvers. Like, I don't know what they're going to put together, but there's something here. That, that's close to right. That's closer to right than not. So the other thing I think is true about a, co- a company in value hacking mode is the word company is actually a misnomer, right? So a friend of mine, Steve Blank says that, uh, a startup is a temporary organization seeking a business model someday. And so when you're investing in a value hacking mode, you're really not investing in a company because like if you did, I thought Justin TV was a stupid idea, uh, and told the guys that, right? But, but, um, you're really investing in, uh, the capabilities of the founders and how meaningful their insights might be. 
and it just felt like live video on the internet was someday going to be a thing and that it was hard to, hard to get right. And that these, this team could do it. Th- then you've got this transition. You're, you're in value hacking mode and you want to shift over to growth hacking mode. And, you know, you've got a few interesting questions that you got to figure out. Uh, do I have product market fit? How do I know I've got it? And for me, it's a little bit Zen like. So I like to say that knowing that you're ready to grow is basically a forward pivot where you're willing to bet the company that you can 10 exit in a certain amount of time with a certain amount of money. And if, if you're hesitant in any way, whatever is causing you to hesitate, write those things down. And that may be what's standing between you and product market fit, because it's, it's a little bit like Hertz car rental. Like if you, if you back up, the tires explode. And so when you, when, you know, when you get into growth first mode, the reason I like to say it's like chemistry is you're literally becoming something different. You go from being MacGyver's to VP of nothing. Every layer of how value gets created changes. You know, you go from trying to find and invent a new idea to now a sudden I need to have predictable growth and, and I need to have people who are experts in the engines that will create that predictable growth, which means I go from being MacGyver to VP of nothing. And what do you mean VP of nothing? Vision can't be hired. Zero to one can't really be hired in our experience. But once you move into a mode that says, I want to 10x my business in a certain time frame, there are experts in your growth engines. You know, there ought to be somebody who's in charge of getting the product economics right. You know, lifetime value, customer acquisition costs or whatever, whatever it may be for your market. But there's also marketing engines about inbound and outbound demand generation, SEO, all kinds of different traction channels. And then you've got sales, you know, if, if, if you're a B2B company, uh, what's someone's quota? What's their on target earnings? How fast do they ramp? What percent will ramp successfully? Uh, what are the playbooks? And then, and then you've got customer success. Uh, what does it take to upsell a customer and what kind of upsell dynamics do we need for this to be a compelling, uh, growth story? So, you know, the way you think about growth changes, what, what we found is in those various growth engines, you want to staff them with people who know that like on the job training doesn't work yeah. in a startup in that mode, because, you know, if you're wrong, you have to back up and the tires explode. Yeah. And how do you know when to, uh, tra- transition from growth hacking to profit hacking? Yeah. I think, I think most companies try to transition too quickly. So most companies get pressured by their boards to show the, this growth theater, uh, optics. What, what I kind of like to say is like, look, we, as long as we're careful about our burn, we can stay in zero to one mode as long as we want because we're more, we're more interested in learning than we are in, than in execution. But like once you shift into an execution posture, uh, you can't really go back. And so, you know, there are all kinds of symptoms of doing it wrong. But what we like to say is, Hey, look, it's okay if we're not ready to grow. If we, if we decide that we're ready to grow and we're in a state of denial, uh, that is very, very hard to unwind. And, and most of these companies that I see run into trouble, they either just never have a value proposition or they believe that it's stronger than it really is. And then they, they start to go too fast. Right. And do you see some of them? Hey, let's start from square one. Let's go back to the value hacking. I do, but it's hard because in the early days as founders, you have a lot of credibility. You have a vision, the team is executing on all cylinders. It's small. It's close knit. Everybody's bought in. But if you say we have product market fit, then you get into growth mode. You hire a bunch of people, spend a bunch of money. And then you say, just kidding. We didn't have product market fit. You're, if you're not careful, 
your moral authority, if you will, as as a founding team starts to decline, and you know the people at the company will only be patient so long with, oh, just kidding, let's start over again. So going back to the, the value hacking phrase uh, phase, how do we think about measuring success? How do you think about metrics? Um, anything about you know leading indicators versus lagging, lagging indicators? What, what should we be measuring? Yeah, so it's it's funny you say that. So in growth first mode, people rightfully do focus on key performance, you know, KPIs that show whether the economics of the, of the business are working, you know, and in SaaS, it might be lifetime value of the customer acquisition costs in a marketplace. It might be the take rate that you're able to get and liquidity, things like that. But what we like to say is that those are lagging indicators. They're lagging indicators of doing the right things earlier, which we call the leading activities. And so the leading activities are the things that you do in value hacking that allow you to convert assumptions or questions into or into facts and earn secrets and conviction. And so value hacking done really well is founders with a great vision and insight interacting with uh, innovative customers that are in on a secret with them. And then those the they get to a point where the customers are like, where have you been all my life? And they literally start pulling product out of the company. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's this very palpable feeling when you have it. And we like to say, if you, if you have to ask if you have it, you probably don't. <laughs> yeah. And we say pulling product out of, you mean just, um, demanding what they, what they want or just sort of their behavior demonstrates that they want a certain thing that now you have to go build or add to it. I, I think so. And so, um, and some, some of the folks uh, in your audience, this may resonate with, but what I find is in a startup, there, there's a limited set of people who, are in on a secret with you, whether it's your early investors or your early customers. And so, and and in many cases, they're buying your product, not just for what the product it does, but they're buying because they believe what you believe and they think that they're in on this with you. And so when, when I've seen product market fit really work, it's those early customers understanding not only the secret that the startup is involved with, but they pull product out of the startup in an intelligent way. They ask for features that totally make sense, given what the product is. That the startup is laying tracks in front of the train, but the customer's directing those tracks into the right, into the promised land. And so, you know, that's kind of what, what you want to see. And too often what happens is people want to want to show that they have product market fit so that they can raise their series A because they've let their burn get too high and they've, they've tracked their metrics too soon and they've cared about execution too soon. And they've, they've never really gotten tight on what the value is and who the early customers are and what product market fit really looks like. There's been this position growth hacker for the last decade or so. And we have an idea of what makes a good growth hacker. Well, I would you sort of differentiate between the skills that makes someone an excellent growth hacker versus someone that makes an excellent value hacker? Yeah, so so I like to say that um, value hacking is like Earth and growth hacking is like Mars. And so like in the movie, uh, The Martian, right? Mark Watney says, and excuse my French, but I'm quoting him, I got to science the shit out of this. And so when you're growth hacking on Mars, that's kind of the mode you have to be in. Um, you're instrumenting all the things about your business that yield smart growth. In the value hacking phase, it's, it's a, it's a little bit more about learning and discovery than it is about execution. And so numbers, while they matter, they matter for a different reason. What you're trying to get is validated, validated understanding about customers. And so, you know, you can, you can say, I want to, I want to achieve a certain amount of revenue, 
but you're not achieving the revenue for the sake of what the revenue is worth. The revenue is worth something different. The revenue is a way to prove to yourself that it was valuable to somebody. And so, so, you know, you're kind of in this mode of, and, and I, and I like the term, you know, what can you uniquely do that people are desperate for? And like all your measurements and your metrics, but more importantly, your leading activities are around figuring that out. Yeah. There seems to be more of a humility in that value hacking phase because, and I guess this is something that happens, must happen to startups a lot where you get some traction, uh, you know, some, some revenue or some engagement, but you make an assessment that, Hey, I, I don't think this either audience is big enough or, or they're not as engaged as, as we might like. What do you think about that in terms of the, those sort of edge cases where it's like, is there enough value here to build a really big startup? There's clearly something, but should we go somewhere else or? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and I don't know if there's a, an absolute answer, but what I would say is that I've noticed that quite often it's true that it's better to have a small number of people have irrational love for your product. And to, and the leap of faith becomes that there will be more people like those people someday. Why is that important? One of the failure modes in value hacking is wanting validation from everybody you pitch the product to. And so when I was uh, back in my entrepreneurial days, we used to have this expression, uh, go for the no. And so I would, I would go into a customer's office and I'd say, look, it, it may not make sense for us to talk here. I sell software that lets people roll out broadband. And if you don't need software that does that, I just gave you 45 minutes of your time back. And I would almost try to make them pull me back into the meeting and say, well, no, I have exactly that problem. What, what can you do for me? Where have you been all my life? Because like what you learn is that it's what most customers aren't going to care what you're doing when you're a startup. Most people aren't going to believe what you believe. And trying to convince them in the early days is a fool's errand. What, what you need to do is, is know what your advantage is, find the people who value your advantage and sp- waste no ergs of energy on anybody else. Yeah. And so value hacking is about finding that set of people who are the early true believers that want to build a market with you as a partner, not just look at it as a vendor supplier customer thing. Z- zooming out, there's this sort of, um, couple different paradigms around go to market that I want to ask you about. One is this sort of, I'll call it the Peter Thiel approach, which is, you know, own a, a, a small niche, uh, you know, monopolize it and then expand that niche, you know, Facebook owning, and, you know, Harvard and, and then universities and then expanding from there. And then the other approach we'll call the Keith Raboy uh, approach, which is take a big category like, uh, real estate and build open, open door, take a category like, uh, healthcare and build, you know, forward, just sort of like vertically integrated full stack in, in huge markets. Do you have a preference or how, how do you sort of think about? Um, I, I think it depends. If you're talking about entering a new field, which I think is more around what Peter's describing, I think it's more important to nail your niche before you grow. Because usually when you're in a new field, the entrepreneurs building the great companies in a new field are already living in the future. They may not even know exactly why yet, but they're living in the future and they notice something. And, th- and that noticing is what is the genesis of a startup idea and uh, a set of true believers, right, F- form their early niche. What I think Keith is talking about that's interesting is I think he had the insight that some markets are just the customer just is very poorly served. And so I would bet that most of the markets that Keith goes after are low NPS score existing markets. And so in the, in, the, in that case, I think that if your value proposition is correct, 
you have to be ready to scale very rapidly because the market will see your value proposition. It will get energized. And so you have to, you have to have a way to scale quickly and, and capture the opportunity. Whereas, um, when you're nailing a niche first, I think you're, you're following the rhythm of the technology adoption lifecycle a little bit more. Right. And so let's say in a new market, like, uh, let's say something like crypto a few years ago, you'd want to nail a niche instead of go after the, the entire market because you don't know where the market's going to go or because I think generally that's true. So, so the, what, what we see happen in most markets and, and, and like I said, the, the, the main thing that we emphasize with people is, okay, if you're value hacking, Keith's approach is not absolutely right. And Peter's approach isn't absolutely right. The, the key is to say, okay, we just raised a seed round here. We're sober. We've got our runway in front of us. What does value creation look like for us? How do we, rather than show up at a board meeting after we've missed some number and say, hey, why are you missing your numbers? Why don't we step back at the very beginning and say, let's have a value creation agenda, right? That's matchable to our market and our, the dynamics of the market. I think that in, um, in crypto, I would tend to believe that it's, it's more of like what Peter describes, where there's a set of alpha geeks that were fiddling with it in the early days and not so much just for the purposes of making money. So a lot of times the early customers in an early market, they're just genuinely interested and obsessed of a new field. And so Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, before they became great business people, they were just obsessed with personal computers and just happened to come, come around at a time when that, that insight was going to matter. And then, and then in the case of um, the, the other types of businesses, like if you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, capitalize on the slowness of the cycle and the and the bad customer um the bad customer feelings about a certain product once you're right and the world is energized to believe in your right you got you got to be ready to go fast totally so let's say that let's make this concrete value hacking example let's let's look at a company like justin tv although you could pick pick a different one and maybe let's say they were starting out with monthly active users i don't know if that's the, the right uh if that's the right metric or not and then they're zooming out and saying hey wait is this the right metric to begin with, what, what sort of questions should they be asking or what, walk through the value hack process? Yeah, well, and, and be careful. I, I should be careful not to represent their thinking about it too much because they were the smart guys that figured it out. And I was kind of along for the ride, but, but, but my understanding of it was that they were doing Justin TV and it was doing sort of okay. And one day Gideon Yu comes and visits with them and they, and they're excited that they've become profitable. And now they, now they can live forever if they want to. And Gideon says, that's fine, but nothing that you've done here is ever going to matter to anybody. And uh, that that really sort of spurred them on to try to come up with a, a more inspiring growth agenda than what they had. And the thing I give them a lot of credit for, apart from the fact that there, it was an anti-fragile team that was super resilient, talented, and could basically build anything, noticing. And so like a lot of great startups in zero to one mode – it's kind of a combination of deliberate and emergent strategy, and it's about noticing something. And they, the, the, the Twitch guys, to their credit, noticed that two things. One was that Justin.tv games was the thing that was really taking off. Maybe that was the company. But then they also spun off this idea of social cam. And, you know, Viddy was popular, and you know, Michael decided to go run that, Michael Seibel. And Michael had the presence of mind to realize both Viddy and Social Cam were on fake growth agendas and the best best way to maximize value creation for Social Cam was to sell it pronto 
which he did. <laughs> totally. So, so the questions there are, hey, this is sort of working, but, um, you know, this thing in the games is really working. Maybe it's doubling down there. And it's also, hey, the path that we're currently on, while profitable, doesn't seem like it's going to be a, a big, so value hacking sort of like, in their case was measuring the rate of their growth or the potential of their growth. Yeah. And I, and I'd say in, in the case of Justin TV, I don't think that they were super mindful of what it, I think if it probably back in the early days, it was a very talented team of people building good stuff. And, you know, they'd have these two week sprints and they learn to get better at these sprints. But I think it wasn't really. And I think that Gideon to his credit was the guy that really lit a fire under him and caused him to kind of say, okay, What's our time really worth? And do we want to do something? Do we not just want to do a startup, but do we want to do something truly legendary? And that was, I think, what really got them kind of in a different mental space uh, of going after something big. How do you think about the difference is between enterprise and consumer and when value hacking? I'd say that the main difference, part of it has to do with B2B versus B2C, but, but I'd say that some companies have the ability to pivot much more because their their uh, iteration tempo is higher. So if I'm a team that can iterate every day or every two weeks, it almost doesn't matter what my first business is, which is part of what, what I thought was enticing about Justin.TV. I was like, you know, this is a terrible business idea, but they're going to figure that out. Whereas um, an- another company we're involved with, Applied Intuition, they're selling autonomous vehicle simulation software to some of the biggest customers in the world. You can't deliver half a loaf to one of the biggest car companies in the world. And so you can't just go out there and throw something over the wall and say, Oh, you don't like this. Just kidding. And so you're the, the, the number of iterations that you're going to get before you get product market fit is less. And so when we, when we invest in a company, but I also encourage entrepreneurs to think this way, what is the correct execution tempo for your type of business? And then that says a lot about your ability to pivot versus not pivot. And it also says a lot about what what type of risk you can take with each given release. Uh, we're in applied to, by the way, shout out to to Casser. Uh, so in, in a company like that, how do you make sure that you don't go and build the the wrong thing? Uh, what does value hacking look like there in terms of really are, are you know some are some companies selling before having the product built or how do you how do you think about that? I, I think so, and I think that uh, if you have less iteration tempo. You have to believe you have fundamentally more domain expertise about the customer scenario that you're selling into. So like if you look at applied intuition, right? They're, they're guys who like grew up in Detroit before they went to Google, right? So they're like techies made in Detroit and they'd worked with car companies. And, you know, I think Casser went to General Motors Institute, right? For undergrad. And so uh, generally speaking, I find that when your execution tempo and value hacking is lower, you need to be more confident in your value proposition and your domain expertise. And you need to be able to have customer conversations where they're like, you know what? These people are the experts. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm willing to, um, put my credibility in the organization on the line, uh, because I, I really believe these people were, are going to help me figure it out. Whereas I think consumer, it's more about value hacking is more about don't go, grow so fast that you're like the, the down to lunch folks where, you're you're not really a growth story. You're more like a solar flare. Everybody tries it. You you have virality and maybe some network effects, but not enough engagement, not enough value. Or the Yo app. Yeah, the Yo app is another good example. And so to me in consumer, even if you have high iteration tempo, 
in the early days, that high tempo ought to be applied to validated learning about customers and what, what creates value for them and what will keep them engaged. And uh, then and only then do you try to really grow. And for, for SaaS companies, how important is it that their pilots are, are paid? I think there's no canonical answer, but in general, I'm, I'm a big fan, particularly in B2B, of getting people to pay sooner than you usually think. So, so for example, um, when I helped start Motive, and this was a while ago, right? This is in the late 90s, but we would charge customers $50,000 to join our early access program. So we didn't even have software yet. Uh, and so like that's one extreme, but, but why does that matter? It's not about $50,000. It's about, wow, if somebody's paid me $50,000 before I have a line of code written, they really have a problem. Like if I solve this problem, we've got a company here. You're, you're getting money not for the purposes of the revenue, but what I find is in, in a lot of startups, there's a huge cultural difference between any amount of revenue and zero. And so you're trying to, you're trying to use revenue to prove that you have value before you go over your skis and go all in on the growth. Yeah. You know, also with SaaS companies, there'll be some customers that will want them to build special features for them. Do you recommend not, not doing that? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a huge, well, I think that the key in, in, B2B SaaS is to, is to understand, you know, where am I 10x better such that I can deliver just these W, what we call WTF features that just rock people's world. And so finding the people that value your advantage that's real and that you can deliver on and selling only those things to those people is usually a better strategy. Because if you do those things, You'll get pricing power. You'll have happy customers. They'll buy more. You'll be successful. But where you get into trouble is it goes back to the wanting everybody to like you problem. You start saying yes to things that aren't additive to the strategy. And so now you're doing features that aren't additive to the strategy. That's opportunity cost, right, of doing the features that would be. And not only that, those customers are more likely to churn someday. And, you know, you're more likely to find yourself competing with other people who promise the same thing. And you're no better equipped to deliver than they are because you're not you're not emanating from your advantages. So let's say a company like Applied Intuition, if not Applied Intuition specifically, you know, one founder said, "Hey, we have really strong value hacking." Another founder said, "You know what?" I, I, and we're ready to move to growth phase. Another founder said, "You know what? I, I still think we might be in the value hacking phase. Uh, Mike, when you come take a look, what are the indicators you, you'd most you know look forward to glean if they if they've hacked value?" Yeah, I, I guess to me, product market fit usually now there product market fit. There's no absolute we have it or we don't. Although I would say that it's more palpable, I think, than most people realize. And so, product market fit feels like a whole bunch of really smart customers who know exactly why they want your product coming to you, saying, "Give me more, give me more, and give me this too." And it's like, you're just, it, it literally is this feeling of laying tracks in front of the train and nobody on the team is arguing about features because like features are coming in that, you know, you need to do these things because they totally make sense. Whereas like when you're, when you run into problems of value hacking is when you're kind of in this, you know, you're wandering through all these blind alleys at night looking for a value proposition and nobody really knows 100% which direction to go in as people start to argue my vision versus your vision kind of stuff. And, and let's take the example of Twitch adjusting TV. I imagine in the Twitch example, though it wasn't there, that it was just so obvious that it was just going up. Like, I could be wrong, but that it was just going up and to the right and, you know, more, more time to pass. People would just love it. In the, with just TV phase, I mean, they got profitable, so they must have had, you know, 
tens of thousands or hundreds, I don't know, some amount of, of users. So what was clear that they hadn't reached product market fit there? I guess they weren't retaining or? Well, well, maybe it's better if I give an example where, where it was clear when, it, so like in the early days of Twitter, there were all kinds of difficulties. We, c- we couldn't keep the servers running. You know, there was d- disagreements about who should run the company, disagreements about what the roadmap should be. No revenue model at all. No roadmap to speak of. And all I can remember at that time was thinking about wh- what the problems were and what could, uh, what could kill us. And then one day I pick up my daughter Sloan at a play date and Sloan's, uh, um, friend's mom comes up to me and says, is it true that you invested in Twitter before it was called Twitter? And, and, you know, I just saw them on Oprah and it just, it just hit me just that second, you know, in spite of the fact that, that I've been worried about stuff, I think this thing is going to become way bigger than I realized. And so what you find is when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you have product market fit, but like you have an idea of what product market fit should look like. The customer tells you something else and you didn't, you don't notice and that's why I like to say you want to have a deliberate strategy to get product market fit, but you also want to have a prepared mind so that if you discover an emergent strategy that's better, you can go all in on that. And so I give the the, the Twitch guys a lot of credit for that. Um, understand noticing is one of my favorite verbs in the pre-product market fit phase, because like sometimes the world gives you earned secrets that you got to pick them up and run with them. And they, and they may not be according to your master plan. Yeah. So Twitter is another example where you invested in a new market, right? Even with Twitter itself, but also Odeo. Odeo. Yeah. That was a new sort of, I guess podcasting was fairly new. The, how, how have you thought about investing in, in new markets? Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because, um, this is another thing I like to make fun of is when, when it's a seed round and people say, how important is the total available market? Cause, um, I mean, how would you have analyzed the total available market for Twitter or Twitch? I mean, it wasn't even Twitch when we invested. Or, you know, Lyft started out as Zimride. Okta started out as Sasher. And so this is why I like to say that uh, we really aren't investing in companies at all. We're investing in great founders with unique insights and that are hopefully correct. And so, um, you know, it's much more about the founders and then, uh, you know, what's your earned secret and what's your why now is kind of what we look at. And so for, for Odeo, what was it? Well, at the time with Odeo, the, the thought was that um, podcasting was going to be huge and that Evan had a lot of insight about just self-expression because he'd written blogger software. And so if anybody was going to pull it off, it would be it would be Ev. And the, the thing that worked against us was Apple decided to give away podcasting on iTunes a week after we did the, C, the Series A. Do you, do you think that there'll be a, a decacorn or multi-billion dollar company in the podcasting space in the next five to 10 years? I, I think there very well could be because I think that I don't think Apple's really improved their podcasting app very much. If anything, it may, may have gotten worse in recent times. So I, th- I think there could be, but, but even if there is, it doesn't feel as much like a, a why now or an earned secret as it did. This is, you know, when I invest in Odeo, it was 2005. And I, and I think Odeo could have, if, if Apple had just never d- done a podcasting app, it, it may have been a different story with Odeo. Yeah. How, how do you think about that? You know, usually people sort of scoff at the idea of why couldn't Google do this or why couldn't Facebook do that? And they say, oh, you know, they're, they're 
that that's not you know keter boy had this tweet of uh if investors not gonna invest in your company because they think google or facebook will do it send it to me i'll invest but this was actually a case where apple did do that and that disrupted the disrupted the company how do you sort of think about incumbents yeah and it and it's funny because like you could say okay does that mean you learned a lesson not to invest in companies like odeo in the future and i knowing what i knew at the time i would write that check again and and the reason is that um like I like to say that the reason I like the thunder lizard metaphor is that, you know, thunder lizards come from the, uh, you know, they come from radioactive atomic eggs and they swim across the ish- the ocean and they destroy cities and stuff. But what, what, what you really want to care about is, is the egg radioactive and startups are super risky to begin with. And so you're, you're hoping to fund a capitalist mutation and studying what didn't work, we find is not the right thing we what we what we want to understand are what are the risks worth taking and so we try to study the things that did work and ask what could go right uh if you now if you're in private equity you got to care more about what goes wrong because you're putting in tons of money and you care about risk but in in our phase risk is something you take and uh, rather than something you worry about and so some risks that you take don't work but that doesn't mean it was a bad risk it just means you took a calculated risk that didn't go your way. Yeah. You're also an early investor in, in Chegg, uh, which uh, my co-founder, Antoine, was the uh, chief business officer. How did you... Uh, Chegg also went through a pivot. Is that correct? That's that's right. So uh, these are three companies that you've invested in, all went through pivots in you know, different ways. What, what do you think makes a successful... Uh, you know, Slack, obviously, IPO went through a big pivot, a successful pivot... Um, and how would you advise, like, what can people learn from those? Yeah, I'd say that the, the first thing is there's a difference between a pivot and what some people in golf, which I'm terrible at, would call a mulligan. And so mulligan is like, would you get a do-over? And for me, a pivot leverages some type of insight that you gained from the wrong idea. And so hence the term pivot, right? It's like you're pivoting off of some foundation that's known, but into a different direction. And so to me, a lot of, a lot of what works in startups is you're non-consensus and right about something. And so you, you've got to have a secret that not the rest of the world knows about that you can go all in on. And so pivots can work if in, in the course of failing on something, you, you got an earned secret that applies to the next thing that can work. Uh, but if you just say, Hey, you know, we decided we're going to do this and now we're just going to completely hit the reset button and be something totally different. I'm pretty skeptical of that. How do you think about value hacking in like highly regulated markets like healthcare, education? I saw you also invested in Clever. How does value hacking look different in, in markets like that? Well, I'd say that value hacking in highly regulated markets is it's, it's more about, uh, avoiding the incumbent regulations. It's more like, uh, how Clay Christensen describes going after unserved customers with a product that's barely better than good enough that delights them because they've never been served by somebody before. But uh, trying to sell against incumbents in a highly regulated market, usually my experience doesn't work. You, you want to go after customers where the incumbents say, oh, I don't want those customers. They're unattractive. Let, let the startup have them. And then what happens over time is you increase your capabilities and delight those customers, and then your capabilities become more broadly relevant, and you start to threaten the incumbents. And how about frontier market? Like, have you done anything in VR, or quantum computing, or or what's your experience there? Yeah, so so we we haven't done anything in quantum computing. We have done something in AR VR, uh, sandbox VR. Uh, so it's it, that that's been a fun investment so far. 
and you know, in a, in an investment like that, you're dealing with the world of bits, but also the world of atoms. Like, can you lo- can you open a location quick enough and get the permits and stuff like that? But uh, so far, I think that they've executed really well. And I don't know if you played the the the, the game. I haven't played it, but I've seen videos. It's pretty of it. kick-ass. Yeah, it's, it's rad. And so, what uh, what got you over the uh, edge there? Like, wh- what could that become? That was just something where we did the product. And so um, I did it with Mitchell Kogan, who is worked at Floodgate and is now over at Facebook. And um, after 30 minutes of, of doing it, we were both drenched in sweat. And, and we're like, man, this product just rocks. And so sometimes you're like, okay, if product market fit is, wh- what can you uniquely do that people would be desperate for? We're like, I can see this, right? I, I, I can squint and see this being one of those. But I don't have to, as a seed investor, I don't have to be able to tell you how exactly that's going to play out, right? I just have to believe it has enough potential energy that there are multiple paths to success. And then the team, obviously, I knew Siki uh, Chen, but also the, the whole team is just amazing. And so, uh, you know, it just felt like a bet worth taking. Yeah. Going back to value hacking, what are the most uh, common mistakes that you think people who commit to value hacking make that they should make sure to watch out for? listening to too much advice from too many people. And so in the value hacking mode, product and customers are what matter. And uh, what ends up happening is, uh, you know, you you get people and this is something that some seed firms do that I don't like. And I hope we don't do is it's like, okay, we've put some money in this company. Now we need to go raise an A someday. That looks good to our LPs. That's a good markup. Uh, we can't afford to have this thing go out of business. And so they, they engage in, you know, what my friend Eric Reese calls premature execution. And they, you know, they start putting numbers in a spreadsheet about their revenue and growth targets because in theory, that's what's going to be needed to raise a series A. You got 18 months to do it. Whereas I'd rather say, look, the way we raise a series A is to be awesome and syndicate the truth because nobody awesome ever fails to raise. And so like, let's ask what we can do to be awesome. And guess what? I'm not the guy to ask that to because I'm not a customer. Yeah. Uh, and so my opinion is interesting, but it's irrelevant because I'm not a customer. And yeah. so, so it's kind of about how do you, how do, how does the startup team spend time with product and customers up until the point where it convinces itself that it has product market fit that's really strong? Yeah. And, and, and zooming out to the sort of structural point that we we're talking about, Bill Gurley and Chamath, uh, having, you know, brought up. Would you recommend any structural changes, namely less capital and in, in, in venture capital or um, you know, people going public earlier? Or what do you think is the uh, what would be your recommended solution to the fake growth industrial complex? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Um, great entrepreneurs figure this stuff out. There may be more startups than there's ever been before. And there may be more capital than there's ever been before. And there may be more fake growth than there's ever been before. But I think the absolute number of great entrepreneurs hasn't really changed. And it's like, it's our job to find those people and help them the best we can. It's kind of the circle of life. You know, there's too much money, too many startups, and someday there may be not as much and not as many. But you wouldn't recommend any structural changes necessarily or not really. It's a longer discussion, right? But, and we talked about a little bit on the crypto discussion, but I think that the fact that interest rates have been artificially low for a really long time has caused too much money to flow to Wall Street and Silicon Valley. And I'm sympathetic to why, because if you're, if, if you're money and it's really low interest rates, you want to find the assets that'll grow and high risk, high growth assets at low interest rates. 
the net present value of the future doesn't get discounted very much. And so it makes sense that you'd go chase these startups. And so what ends up happening is capital floods the sector before the IPO. And because these companies are staying private longer, largely due to Sarbanes-Oxley, in my opinion, you know, 15, 20 years ago, in the last bubble bursting, and it really wasn't the tech bubble that caused it, it was really Enron and uh, the lack of oversight in their business. There's this regulation called Sarbanes-Oxley, which made it much more uh, onerous to both go public and be public. And so if you're CEO of one of these companies and it's easy to raise money in the private markets and you're not held as accountable for your decisions and your growth, it's tempting to stay private longer, which is bad for the company, but it's also bad for the investing public because back in the day, you could invest in Microsoft after the IPO and make 100 times your money. But even Facebook, right, which is worth hundreds of billions, it was worth, I want to say, $50 billion or so when it went public. Uh, what, you know, Lyft, it's great, great for the venture folks that it's, you know, worth what it's worth, but the public markets don't get to participate till much later. Yeah. So I think, ironically, regulation that was intended to protect consumers from fraudulent accounting of these startups cause the people to be more risk averse about going public and take longer. And that's the common thing that happens with regulation, right? Yeah. And then, alternative. And then in a world where capital is underpriced, capital floods into the sector before the IPO. And so, you know, the, the practical implications of that is that companies stay private longer and the, 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 the people who make money on the up, up rounds are the private investors. Yeah. And a quick history lesson. How did Enron fall precipitate the failure it was too big to fail or yeah well enron was this company that was a darling of the industry it was found to have massive accounting fraud arthur anderson which was their um uh, audit firm even went out of business uh, largely because of enron and so people said something has to be done about this and so they passed legislation which um had much more regulation and oversight. And and by the way, like I I don't think markets should just be unfettered, unregulated, crazy markets, but I think that people often don't understand the unintended consequences. And so you you end up trying to do something to help people, you end up causing them by lack of participating in the upside of the new companies that are created to actually lose out more than they would have by taking the risk. What, what do you think is the ideal either level of regulation or framework of regulation or scope of it or? Well, that's tough. I mean, it, it depends on the circumstance. I mean, in the end, I think that regulations should exist to protect the rights of honest people and uh, to protect them from either violence or fraud being visited upon them. And so you want to have some, but I think you, you got to be careful about, you know, you got to ask yourself, what do, what do I get when I do this? And is it, is it worth a trade-off? Totally. Do you think that there should be credit investor? Like, do you think you should only be able to invest in startups if you have over a million dollars net worth or, or what do you think that role should be? I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm more inclined these days to feel like, um, there should be mechanisms that allow people to invest before they're accredited investors. You know, in the, in the end, all investing is how do you make money for the risk you take? And if you tell certain people in the world, sorry, you know, I'm 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 just going to have to paternalistically decide that you're not allowed to take that risk. You're just not smart enough to take that risk. Unlike this accredited investor over here, what you really do is you exclude certain fields of risk and return from people who have less money. And in the end, I'm not a huge fan of that. And and I'm not a huge fan of um governments telling people uh, against their own choice 
what they're capable of doing or not doing as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Totally. Circling back to, to value hacking and some of the pitfalls there, one of the ones you have here is uh, is revenue chasing or, or even engagement chasing, but from from but not from the right customers. So how, how can people evaluate that? Yeah, so revenue chasing happens when a startup says, I need to grow at a certain rate every month. And so they have this spreadsheet that shows what their numbers need to be. And then they, they decide that they'll take any business that lets them meet that number. What ends up happening is uh, you end up taking – we talked about this a little bit. You, you end up adding features to the product in order to close customers or you make promises that you can't keep or you chase customers where you have no real advantage or you chase customers that are just fundamentally unattractive as they might go out of business. You might make the numbers in the short term, but it's it's a little bit like getting lapped in a race. When the reality hits, you just can't catch up and the numbers get bigger and bigger and the quality of your business gets worse and worse. And so I like to say that when you're in growth mode, real growth is defined as um, the accelerated accumulation of attractive customers. In order to do that, you need to know what is an attractive customer and are we getting them at an increasingly rapid rate? And if you do that, you will be successful. The numbers will look good later, but you got to do that up front, I think. One of the other pitfalls you have is that founders become the bottleneck. How does that happen? Yeah. So in growth first mode, because you've moved from, let's call it the earth of value hacking to the Mars of growth hacking, uh, what it takes to win totally changes. And so um, a lot of times what will happen is um, the company is unwilling to commit to a set of things. Am I willing to hire people who can execute the predictable growth engines? Or do I try to train myself in that job? Uh, do I do my second product too soon? Do I do my second market too soon? Um, and, and what happens in all those cases is pretty soon everybody there starts to feel like this place isn't as focused as it used to be. And so the next thing you know is you get a line of people outside the founder's office saying, hey, you know, I, I, I've i got an emergency here. I need a decision about this. I need a decision about that. And you get people second-guessing decisions because there's too many moving parts, too many th- open switches. And then when that happens, uh, if you're not careful, it undermines your integrity as a leader because now the people who had faith in your direction, you know, you crushed zero to one. Everybody thinks you're a genius. Now you're just changing your mind all the time, never committing to direction, and people start becoming miscontents and start saying, you know, why why can't we focus anymore? What's what's wrong with this place? You know, I heard that the company TBH before selling to Facebook had something like 16 pivots in a, in a matter of a few years. How do you think about the tension between you know, wanting to stick to something and see it through versus also understanding that it's going to take a bunch of iterations to to get there? Yeah, and I think it's perfectly okay in value hacking phase to say, there are likely to be several iterations here. And in fact, as a seed investor as well, you'll never see me in a board meeting from one to the next saying, well, wait a second, that's not what I invested in. Because I like I expect them to learn super fast. And and because because you're trying to learn, I like to say in every iteration, we should ask ourselves what surprised us because the the surprises are the things that you savor. And so there's nothing wrong with having iterations and savored surprises as you go in value hacking. But when you shift to growth hacking, you're not looking to do a whole bunch of new things. You're trying to copy what works. And um, if, if you do a whole bunch of new things while also trying to copy what works, you confuse the organization, you, you run into a lot of problems. Another pitfall you have here is too many target, market, too many target markets uh, out the gate. 
is it maybe it's if you're doing a new market nail a niche but any other frameworks or additional thoughts you have there like for example should justin tv if they can go back in time well obviously hindsight's 2020 but should they have started with one category to begin with or how do you typically advise people in terms of like picking which target market yeah so so i think that the way i like to say is people talk about being a big fish in a small pond i like to say how could you be a crocodile in a puddle you know it's it's sort of like you're trying to find the set of people who viscerally desire what you're doing and some people might say, well, then you're going to, your target market's going to be too small. And, and that's a valid concern, but I've seen way fewer companies be that focused and fail than companies that are just kind of all over the place, you know, throwing breadcrumbs in the water and seeing what fish will bite. Yeah. And so like, uh, Jeff Smith at Smule has a great expression for this. He says, the power of a startup is to focus and, and the failure mode of a startup is to hedge when you should focus. Um, because only startups are truly allowed to focus without hedging. And so any, any hedge that you do is at the, at the, at the detriment of the focus. I'm curious for investments that you've made that other people might say, Hey, I just, that customer base is, is really tough. And I mean, clever comes to mind in terms of, you know, people think selling to schools is, is really hard or, or, or people, or it has been hard. How do you think about it in that example or how do you think about it otherwise? Yeah. It's, it's funny because in the seed round and in zero to one, I just think it's so much more important to ask what could this become? And it's just, you know, every startup kind of has a why now moment. And so, um, you know, before YouTube, nobody had ever made a go of having ubiquitous video online. And so, um, I'm very, uh, non-sympathetic to that objection, to be honest. Is there a reason why you haven't done much healthcare companies? Well, we've, we've done a few. Um, the, the biggest investment we made was in Clover and, and there's two that are, we're about to announce here pretty soon. So we've, we've done some, but we've been, you know, in the end, a startup has to grow at a wild exponential rate. And so you have to find target markets where that can happen without too much friction. So that's, that's always a challenge. Yeah. Were there similar why nows across any of the healthcare companies you invested in? Um, yeah, sometimes in healthcare, what you find is that a why now can be something to do about AI or machine learning, but also some type of a regulatory change, which takes something that was once blocked and now eliminates all the friction. So that can be kind of interesting. It, to me, why now is a really good question to ask in the value hacking phase, because on the surface, it's like, well, why now for this idea? But if you step back, you could say, well, let's just assume that almost every startup idea has ever been tried. It's it's very focusing for a team to ask, what has changed either about the technology or the user adoption or the regulations that make it now only possible? So like with, with Lyft and Uber, there were enough smartphones that everybody had them pretty much. But a lot of people don't realize this. In in, in the generation of the iPhone, the, the GPS locator chip got accurate enough. So you couldn't have done it. You couldn't have done it when the apps weren't good enough, when the GPS wasn't good enough. But, but like once, once those things converged to be good enough and enough people had smartphones, now you had something. And so like to me, why now is a great focusing question for any founding team because it, it forces you to really hone in on what are the change events that create the opening for this exponential opportunity. A not so great answer to a why now is, well, our team's just awesome. We're just way better than anybody that's ever come before. And that may be true. I mean, you, you may have Elon Musk as your CEO, but like bad, bad, bad assumption. 
Or what about unfair expertise? Like uh, we have someone or for access, we had someone who worked at the FDA. Now we can make sure, uh, sure that this gets through the FDA yeah. or, uh, you know, deep insurance expert in parametric insurance. And, you know, yeah, for me, that's more that asks more like why us, right? Than why now? But but for me, why now is the reason I like it so much is it causes you to say what's happened that's even bigger than us that's that makes the opportunity available where it's never been before. Right. And for Justin TV, it was it was easier getting easier to, to make live video. Uh, well, and and also um, the the CDNs were getting better, and so you know the 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 ability to stream content at the edge much more cost effectively and higher performance got way better. Let's move a little bit to the the one to X growth phase. Uh, you say you need to create a predictable growth machine. Talk, talk about what, what that looks like. Yeah, so so may, maybe it would help just to give an example of a SaaS company, but it could be any any company. So the first thing in one to X that we encourage people to do is to have what we call a value agenda. And so a value agenda for a company that's in SaaS might be something like, let's go from a million ARR to ten million ARR in less than 18 months, consuming less than $9 million. And so it, it, it includes those three dimensions, the, the magnitude of the growth, the timing of the growth, and the amount of capital consumed. And you say, okay, great. Are we being rational with that agenda? And we define rational as if we have ambitions to be a one-day top quartile public company. And so we say, okay, great. We've checked that box. Now, what would we need to do that would guarantee that would happen? What would the product economics need to look like? LTV, CAC, CAC payback periods, uh, those types of things, whatever applies, right, to, to this product market category. And then who is the directly responsible individual for achieving those numbers? Okay, now let's, so that maybe that's the product engine. Then you got the marketing engines. You've got outbound, uh, you've got inbound, and that could be a combination of content, events, and programs. And you want your marketing people to not think like programs people, but like entrepreneurs who have a budget that they allocate across various different traction channels to, to produce enough leads to provision sales. So you want to create leads faster than your forecasted revenue growth rate. Otherwise, sales get starved of leads. And so then with sales, you want to say, okay, in order to make these numbers, how many reps do I need to have through time that are productive and what is, how much are they selling and how much am I going to pay them and how fast do they come up to speed and how many of them are going to work out versus not. And then, uh, and then at the end, you've got customer success. What does my upsell look like? My land expand, explode. What do those numbers look like? And I like to say that all those things, customer success, marketing, sales, product, they're like gears in a machine that turn in harmony. And when they turn in harmony correctly, they produce as output that value creation agenda that we described earlier. And so you're trying to, and what you want in each of those gears is a process that alerts you immediately when you're off track. Because if, if the gear starts spinning and you're off track for a long time, the engine kind of falls apart. And so, you know, you just want these gears operating in harmony. That's a really different job than being MacGyver and discover new product. Yeah. And so how do, as a founder, you prepare for that transition? I think that it's as, as much of a, or more of an emotional thing than it is an intellectual thing. So it's, it's hard as a founder to say, I need to hire people to do those jobs and trust that they can do them. The, the, the failure modes are you wait too long to hire them and try to train yourself to do it. 
which is terrible because you, you're not doing founder things as well. And you're trying to be a B plus player at a job. Lots of people could be an A plus at, but then the other failure mode is to, um, usually because of bad advice to hire overpaid big company folks to run those engines, you know? Um, so like not to criticize Salesforce, a great company, but some people who've sold at Salesforce have never built a sales model. And so they come in wanting to implement the Salesforce strategy. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And what mistakes do people in this phase make around unit economics? I'd say the biggest mistake is not having them. And so, you know, they, they either don't have them or they don't quantify them the right way. I think that the other thing is, um, you know, having our happiers on about how fast they can improve. And so, you know, and usually that comes from revenue chasing kind of problems. Yeah. You end the presentation by, by asking, asking, how does this, all of this relate to picking a startup? So unpack what you mean by that. Yeah. So, so, well, I like to say that our, our job is to find these people with amazing insights that will have these breakthrough products in new fields usually. And so when we, when we work with the startup teams, we, we like to work with startup teams that, internalize the idea that value hacking is different from growth hacking and they may not use those exact words in fact usually they don't but it's like usually the teams that we work with are kind of simpatico with that idea and so you know what's what's happening right now that we worry about from picking point of view is that seed rounds have kind of gotten inflated and so now you know in a world where we used to have five hundred thousand dollar seed rounds now there's like three million dollar seed rounds with the same runway. And what we find is that those companies ramp their burn quicker and they, they have fewer degrees of freedom when value hacking rather than more degrees. Yeah. I want to ask a, a couple more sort of rapid fire questions to cl- close the interview. One is the, uh, the new market of income share agreements that Lambda is sort of popularizing where you go to school for, for free upfront and then you pay a percentage of your, of the income if and only if they make over a certain amount. I'm curious how you would uh, analyze that sort of new market or new business model and like would you you know invest in something like a, an angel list for, or, or a coin list for for isas or how would you look at that new market new business model and say hmm uh here's my sort of request for startups in this area or, or here's where i think this you know business could be really interesting yeah and and by the way i think that the isa part of it was an important innovation on um austin's part austin allred who's who started lamb school but what I, what I think Austin's really tapped into is something a little bit bigger than that. So I think that our, our college education system isn't really working very well right now. So you, you've got, you've got a set of colleges where if, if you get a degree from MIT, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton, you know, places like that, you get a job, but, but largely not because of what you learned at school, but because the, 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 the signal and the merit badge that the degree is. And so companies have decided that, all things being equal, if I hire a computer science uh, graduate from Stanford, they're going to be a successful employee, and it and usually they are. But like I like to say that you know it proves three things: you won a tournament in high school, you stuck with it for four years, and you have an awesome network. And so uh, that's what they're really hiring you for is for the presence of the signal from that fact. Well, unfortunately, we have a lot of colleges now that overcharge students relative to uh, their ability to deliver a good career opportunity. And then you have all these companies that say that colleges aren't preparing students for the the skill gap that they're experiencing. So what I like about what Austin's doing and, and what several companies were involved with one called Thinkful 
is they're they're saying, okay, let's let's solve the problem for the ambitious person who wants a job and wants to be honest, hardworking in a technical field, but can't figure out what they're supposed to be doing in four years at college or why they're there and why they should go into all this debt. And then, and then what they're also offering the company is a, val- a value proposition that says, Hey, maybe there's a new kind of signal and a new kind of credential. So, so I'm, I'm sort of more interested in that. Although I suppose that you could also say that funding a share of somebody's future profits could be another, another attack vector. Are there other uh, requests for startups that you have about either new markets or other things that you just really want to exist for entrepreneurs listening to this that you say, Hey, I'd really great if someone went out and built X. Well, we have an idea for a very interesting enterprise software company that would serve um, Fortune 500. And I guess I got to be careful about revealing too much, but I, I would love to find somebody who would like to be CEO of a company that is almost like Palantir, but for the Fortune 500 rather than the government and the NSA. There's a set of reasons I believe that, but I think that that opportunity could be huge. And I could, and I know that we could get it funded and I know that we could get in front of a lot of very strategic customers. But in the end, it doesn't really matter what my idea is. There has to be someone who's going to will that sucker into existence who cares about it. Yeah. Very cool. Do, do you think there's some, does value hacking apply to, uh, people who are, say, starting a venture firm? Um, or how, how should, the principles we've been talking about and apply it to, to venture, if at all. I think so. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, like somehow I guess no good deed goes unpunished. And so I get a lot of, Hey, can I get advice on fundraising kind of stuff, you know, for my seed fund? And what I always tell people is the people you're going to raise money from in fund one, they probably already want to fund you. What I would do is I'd find those people and close on their dollars and say that's the size of fund one. And it, it's very related to people who believe what you believe. And so where most seed funds, I think, screw up is they they soft circle some number for fund one, and then they go pitch a bunch of LPs, and they lose their mojo because a lot of LPs aren't ready to do it yet, or they have objections or whatever. And, and you know, in zero to one mode, a fund really needs to start to create tangible proof of its thesis, and it needs to do that with people who believe in the thesis. Yeah. And you've said that you're Tell me your fund size and I'll tell you your strategy. Well, you unpack the essential idea there and then I have a follow-up question to that. Sure. So let's suppose that you want a fund that is a 3X. Well, I believe that power laws are real, which means that your biggest exit usually exceeds the value of all, all your other combined exits. So in a 3X fund, that would mean your biggest exit would have to be 1.5X the fund. And so let's say you have a $100 million fund your best exit needs to return $150 million of profit. So that could be 10% of 1.5 billion. It could be 1% of 15 billion. Now let's say you have a billion dollar fund. Your biggest exit has to return $1.5 billion. Now it can happen, right? I think that, um, the guys over at Excel, you know, folks over there, I think will get that with Slack, but that's what you're signing up for. And so, yeah, I like to say to founders that however big somebody's fund is, you can tell what their ambitions will be for your exit and no matter what they say. And if they're, if they're, if they're saying, Oh yeah, I know that I'm a $500 million fund, but I also write seed checks. Maybe they do write seed checks, but that's not, you know, that's not their core product. If their funds $500 million. Yeah. And so one thing I've been meaning to push a little bit on is this idea of, could there be sort of like a soft bank for, for seed or pre-seed? And what I mean by that is, 
you know, if the math on 100K in Uber is it returns, say, 300 million, and if you have a $100 million fund, would it be batshit crazy for one firm to say, hey, we're going to do 1,100K checks and we either get Uber or two Ubers uh, or we bust? I guess that that's not how I would do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the way I see it is entrepreneurs pick you as much as you pick them. And I think that if a fund was doing a thousand checks, I think chances are entrepreneurs would view that as second class capital. And now, now, now you, you lose both ways because, uh, you, you make a thousand bets and then Travis doesn't need, you know, he's like, Hey, why, why, why would I work with this fund when I can work with Rob Hayes first round? Or, you know, in the case of Lyft, why, why would I work with this fund when I can work with Ann Murco at Floodgate? And so, so I think that's the part that some people miss is it's not like you're buying stocks in an index fund or a stock market. Venture is one of the only businesses I've seen where the seller of the share cares who the buyer of the share is. Right. And so Floodgate's portfolio construction is, is it 50 companies per fund or? It's, it's probably in that zone. Um, the, the way I like to look at it is, uh, what's our picking skill? And I define picking skill as the percent of companies that we invest in that return the entire fund and then right. some. And, um, to some degree, like if you think that, that 10% of, of your investments will return the fund, then you're going to have a smaller portfolio than if you think 5% will, or if, if you think 1% will. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, the number of, you're really making two commitments with your fund, the size of the fund, which is really a commitment to your LPs about what your biggest exit will be. And then the number of companies you invest in the fund, which is really a function of what you believe your skill is at picking fund returners. And why would it be a bad idea for you to double from 50 to 100 companies or 50 to 80 companies because you'd have more shots on goal for an outlier and, and thus, you know, potentially better, better returns? Is it because you sacrifice the, the picking or the supporting or? I, I think th- th- those two reasons. And then the other is that you end up owning less of the good ones. And so, uh, one of the, one of the problems with seed funds is, they never own enough of the good ones. And so you, you, you've got to not only own the exits that are really meaningful, but you got to own enough that it, it one and a half X is your fund at least. Right. What, what if you increase the fund size correspondingly? If you increase the fund size correspondingly, like at what size does it break you, down? To you, you? Yeah. I mean, in the end, the, the, the bigger your fund is, the, the, the higher the magnitude of your biggest exit has to be. Probabilities of big exits are not linear, right? So like, for example, a $1 billion exit is way more than 10% less likely or, you know, one-tenth as likely as a $100 million exit. So, you know, it's not um, – the, the elasticity of exit size is not linear. It's yeah. exponentially going down. But the magnitude of those exits, if you get them, is super high. Right. Yeah, and it's, I guess what separates firms like you in first round that have sort of stuck to their knitting, so to speak, versus like firms like, I don't know, Thrive – or social capital, or I don't know, firms that really just scale up is they perhaps have, I want to put it charitably, has more confidence in their ability to get your, or more risk taking in their ability to get unicorns. Well, and I, and, and you know, I, um, I always get nervous about describing somebody else's strategy, right? Cause it's, um, hard enough for us to do our job. But, you know, I, I think that Josh is really smart, um, over at Thrive and, um, I'm not sure he would, think of himself as necessarily a seed fund. Like I would think that he believes he's running a different offense than floodgates running, but, but I can tell you whatever his fund size is, 
that his biggest exit needs to return 1.5 X that amount in profits or it ain't going to work. Totally. And do you think for, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, the floodgates, the first round of the world will basically have the same strategy and eventually will look very much the same. Or do you expect it to be very different? Uh, I think the really interesting question about seed is whether a few firms will emerge that have strong brands that entrepreneurs will like really think is different. And I think that, you know, I think we've probably done a, a reasonably okay job and, and first rounds done a great job. But it's still really early, right? Like b- both of us got started in the late 2000s. But I, to me, success for folks like us would be five to 10 years from now, people say, wow, I just raised from one of those firms. That's going to be a game changer for me. Yeah. Because I think that that's what people feel like when they raise money from Benchmark or Sequoia or Excel or some of those. I think there's a reasonable chance of that happening. I hope. I, I think the opportunity is there. It's up, up and coming on us and firms like us to execute. Uh, but I also think there's just going to be a ton of money and just all, you know, I think that operator angels and angelist syndicates and accelerators, all that stuff, I think is a permanent fixture yeah. of the landscape. Uh, that's a good place to close. Uh, we've been lucky to do a couple investments with, with Floodgate, uh, Applied Intuition, and um, Ontic. Ontic. Yep. And uh, excited to do more. And if uh, you're an entrepreneur listening to this, definitely consider Mike, uh, Ann, and uh, the rest of the, the Floodgate team. Uh, my guest has been Mike Maples, uh, and this has been a discussion on, on value hacking. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 